The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Welcome to Season 2 of Students of Mind, the podcast where we aim to normalize conversations about mental health. Last season, we connected you with experts in the field of mental health to provide an understanding of topics and illnesses that may not have been easily accessible. This season, we will continue our learning journey together by not only speaking to experts, but also by listening to the voices and stories of real people who are living, surviving, and even thriving while also facing challenges with their mental health in their everyday life. This season, we want to hear your stories to get the full truth of what it's like to manage one's mental health and navigate living with mental illness. I'm your host, Jade, and on today's episode, we'll be exploring PTSD. First, I will sit down with therapist Christina Margarosian to go over what trauma is and how it leads to the development of PTSD. In the second part of the episode, I have a lovely conversation with Mia Hemstad, a mental health advocate, mother, and trauma survivor. Mia shares what led to her PTSD diagnosis, how it has affected her life, and the tools she uses to manage symptoms day to day. I hope by listening to the show, you're able to learn something new and gain some encouragement through hearing our experts and listening to the journeys of our guests. However, this show is not a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have about your condition. Never disregard professional advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on the Students of Mind podcast. This episode contains brief discussions about sexual abuse. If this is a topic that could be triggering or upsetting for you, I encourage you to skip to the time code listed in the top line of the description and refer to the show notes for resources that may be helpful for you. Today's first guest is Christina Madurosian, a marriage and family and certified EMDR therapist based in Pasadena, California. Christina currently works predominantly with adult trauma survivors and individuals living with complex PTSD. In our conversation, we define trauma and dive into how it can develop into PTSD. Christina also shares some of the modalities that she uses in her practice to help her patients heal from their trauma. Without further ado, here's our conversation. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. 
Um, before we get into the main topic of the episode, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do? Sure. So my name is Christina Martirosian, and I am the director and founder of Pastina Trauma Therapy here in Pastina, California. And um, it is a group practice. We specialize predominantly in working with um, trauma survivors, anyone on the trauma spectrum, but predominantly with uh, sexual abuse survivors and dissociative disorders. We also run uh, groups for sexual abuse survivors, both male and female. And I, on the side, uh, also do um, a lot of workshops for mental health professionals uh, on the topic of trauma uh, that want to learn more about how to work with it uh, in different modalities, which um, I'm happy to explain later. Um, and I also provide consultations for therapists who want to learn more about how to work with trauma somatically or EMDR. Um, so that's what I do. And I'm really excited to talk about PTSD with you here today. Yeah, great. Thank you for sharing. Um, I'm really excited for this conversation too. I feel like I know a little bit just because I have um, some family members with PTSD. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But I, I am excited today because I know I'm going to learn some more. Awesome. Um, so like just starting with the basics of like, what is PTSD and what is the criteria for someone to be diagnosed with PTSD? Good question. So I would like to actually talk about the, just the word trauma. Um, and then I'm happy to explain the diagnostic criteria for PTSD. But I feel like trauma is on a spectrum. I feel like we are all on there to some degree, but essentially, I guess the, my definition of trauma is when we, we become traumatized, when our capacity to respond to a perceived threat is in some way overwhelmed, right? And so this impacts our ability to integrate the, the traumatic experience and accurately assess safety. So like I said, trauma is on a spectrum. It could be a one-time incident such as uh, a car accident, a sexual assault, natural disaster, right? Death of a loved one, or something that is chronic and ongoing. So for instance, someone who grows up in domestic violence as a child or ongoing physical abuse and incest, right? So ongoing. So PTSD is a mental health condition. It's, it stands for post-traumatic stress disorder. And it occurs in people who have experienced or witnessed um, a traumatic event. It can also come about from hearing about the trauma, just hearing about it. So, for example, um, someone hearing about the violent rape of a close family friend uh, can, can feel tra traumatized after hearing something like that happen. So PTSD affects approximately 3.5% of um, U.S. adults every year, and an estimated 1 in 11 people, that's a lot, 1 in 11 people will be diagnosed with PTSD in their lifetime. Uh, Jade, this might not shock you, but women are twice as likely as men to have PTSD. And um, the three ethnic groups, uh, Latinos, African Americans, and American Indians, are disproportionately affected and have higher rates of PTSD in retrospect. Um, 
in order to meet the PTSD criteria, PTSD symptoms may start within one month of a traumatic event, but sometimes they might, may not appear until years after the event. Uh, a lot of people don't know about that, but it can come about much later. And these symptoms cause significant problems in functioning, in social work situations, and in relationships. So according to the DSM, which is where therapists, uh, you know, is our diagnostic manual where every diagnosis is written, PTSD has to have a major type of symptoms. So one of those is called re-experiencing symptoms. So things like having flashbacks or intrusive thoughts about the trauma, um, what I call body memories. So essentially, I'll give a quick example. It's if someone was sexually assaulted, right? And then months later, they have pain in their vagina and they don't know why, right? And and you rule out all medical um, causes and the pain is still there. That's a form of a body memory. Mm. Okay. So um, intense physical or emotional reactions to the reminder of the event um, is another way to re-experience. Uh, nightmares is another way to re-experience the trauma, right? So that's the first category. The second category is called avoidance symptoms, which I think is very common, is when people don't want to talk about the trauma or they avoid people, places, um, or activities that remind them of the trauma, right? I had a client who um, was abused in a church. And so now whenever he drives by any church, right, his heartbeat increases, he gets sweaty, right? His body is telling him this is not safe. Um, even though logically, right, the trauma happened many years ago and he knows it's over, but his body is still giving him those uh, re-experiencing symptoms that we just talked about. The third category is negative changes in your thinking and emotions. And so that, that could be anything like feeling down or depressed anxious, right? Feeling shame or guilt is very common. Losing interest in the things you used to do. Being unable to remember important parts of the trauma, also very common. Um, and just negative thoughts about yourself, other people in the world. And the fourth category is what's called hyperarousal or, you know, emotional or physical reactivity. So that could be anything like, uh, like super hypervigilant of your environment. Uh, maybe it's hard to concentrate when you're in that state, um, quick to anger, irritability, and then something that's not discussed very often. But in this category, um, I also have clients who do what's called high risky behaviors. So maybe impulsive sex or binge drinking, right? That, that creates this reactivity. So those are the four categories that you will find in the DSM about PTSD. And, and if I can put a little plug in for children, for kids, it can show up a little bit differently. Um, you'll see things like wetting the bed after they've already learned to use the toilet, right? Like regressive behavior. That's a trauma reaction. Um, forgetting how or feeling unable to talk. So like selective mutism after a trauma. And kids will show us trauma in their play. So maybe they'll show you like violent uh, scenes with their toys or some kind of abuse in their play activity. Um, frightening dreams is another way that kids will show that they're traumatized. Um, and then being unusually clingy with the parent or adult. 
Um, so these are some just some signs to also look out for in kids that have been traumatized. Okay, so I guess my next question is like people experience trauma in different ways, as you mentioned. It's kind of a spectrum. So like if two people experience the same traumatic event, but only one person kind of has those like severe reactions, like what's the difference? Like what are there certain risk factors that make people more predisposed to having PTSD? That's a great question. So yeah, two people can go through the exact same trauma and how they um, deal with it and manage it can be completely different. Um, so the risk factors is a great question. So many factors play a part in whether a person will develop PTSD. Some of the factors that increase risk for PTSD, I'll name a couple things, is if they've lived already through dangerous events and traumas in their past, um, childhood trauma, right, when they're exposed to life-threatening events early on, um, feelings of horror, helplessness, or extreme fear add to that. Having no social support, that's really important. If they don't have anybody that they can talk to, a therapist, family, pastor, whoever, a friend, um, and they're stuck with it alone, that, that stays there, right? Um, I think dealing with extra stress after the trauma can add as well a risk factor. Um, for example, loss of a job or home. Um, having a history of mental illness or substance abuse can also increase the risks of having PTSD. But let me also speak to what can help promote recovery uh, after trauma. As I mentioned, the social support is huge. Um, being able to talk about the trauma, being heard, right? Being believed is a huge part of healing. Um, group therapy is really good for that, uh, for, for trauma. And then getting back to one's life. So, you know, returning to your routine, such as going to work or going to school to the best of your ability, right? Um, maintaining a sleep schedule. These things that are part of your normal day-to-day -day can help in terms of the risk factor. The one last thing I'll add to that list is making meaning of what happened. So I think when someone can make meaning in um, what happened with the trauma, right, what they think about themselves or people in the world after this trauma is really important um, because that's how we can work through self-blame, you know, um, and finding coping skills right after something like that has happened. Um, I feel like for a lot of the mental illnesses that are out there, there are like biological ways that it shows up. Um, so I'm wondering how, like, how does it show up in the body? Okay. So in the body and the brain? Yeah, both. Yeah. Okay. So um, that's a really good question. Um, so let's, let's talk real basics about just certain parts of the brain that are really involved in PTSD. Um, the amygdala is a part of our brain that is responsible for our flight, flight, or freeze response, right? Um, it's the part of the brain that identifies some kind of threat or if there's a, a danger around us. So this alarm system, we can call it, it prepares our body to respond either by dealing with or getting away from the threat or freezing. And so when somebody experiences a disturbing event, the amygdala sends a signal that causes a fear response. So 
those with PTSD tend to have an overactive amygdala, okay? Um, the amygdala also communicates with other parts of the brain, like the hypothalamus, um, which releases stress hormone cortisol. Um, sorry, I don't want to make it too complicated, but one more part. The other, the other important piece to mention is that um, our prefrontal cortex is uh, the brain's area that ass assesses the source of the threat and determines if the body needs to stay on high alert to deal with the threat or if the body can calm down. So um, your prefrontal cortex helps you think through decisions. It observes how you're thinking and puts on the brakes when you realize something you first feared isn't actually a threat at all. So in other words, it helps us regulate emotional responses triggered by that amygdala, that fight, fight, or freeze. So people with PTSD, the prefrontal cortex doesn't always manage to do its job when it's needed because that amygdala is so overstimulated. So let me, let me just simplify that. Um, an overactive amygdala combined with an underactive prefrontal cortex, it, it's like the perfect storm, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. So um, is, it, is it like, is it kind of like the event kind of gets like stuck inside the brain in a way? And they like it does, it can't tell that that's not a source of danger anymore. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. It's like the brain is scanning that, that hypervigilance we talked about earlier. It's like the brain is scanning to still assess danger. Another way I can simplify this a little bit is we have a left brain and a right brain, right? Our left brain is our logical part of the brain that can talk about the narrative of the trauma, whereas our right side, it's it's the opposite. It's body sensations, emotions, gestures, movement, um, unconscious stuff. And that that's where uh, a lot of the therapy has to come in. Talk therapy is really great, but it's limited. We have to access the other side. Um, so you mentioned talk therapies, which is, I think, a good segue into the next topic is mm -hmm. like, what, what are some of the treatments that are out there to treat PTSD or just trauma in, in general? So talk therapies um, are really helpful in helping people navigate how they're reacting to frightening events that trigger their PTSD. And again, it, it's tapping into that left side of the brain, uh, talk therapy. Uh, it teaches us about trauma and its effects. Uh, you know, we can help teach grounding techniques so that um, clients can have tools to regulate their nervous system. It can provide tips for better self-care right, after a traumatic event, and it can change um, how people react to their PTSD symptoms. A, a very popular form of talk therapy is called cognitive behavioral therapy, which focuses on uh, negative thoughts and, and emotions that are related to the trauma. So negative emotions like shame or guilt and negative beliefs like I have failed or the world is dangerous, right? Um, so th the therapist would be able to help um, the client work through these thoughts and emotions. That is a left brain approach. Um, there are other types of therapies that that help with that right side of the brain. Um, and I'm happy to explain some of those things. Trauma gets stored in the body. Okay, so let me give an example. I had a woman who 
was raped by a tall, bald Caucasian man. Even though she had talked, right, left brain, talked about that, ther- that trauma for years in therapy, every time she would see a tall, bald Caucasian man, her right side would be overstimulated, right? It, it, her heart would beat, she would get sweaty, her stomach would be in knots. It's as if the trauma was happening all over again, right? So talk therapy is going to help with, okay, let's differentiate how, how is this person different? from your perpetrator, right? Is he the same height? Is he different weight? Does he dress differently? Is he a different age, right? That's called orienting to 2021, meaning um, name what's different now from the past. That's the left brain, but we need to address how it is still stuck in the brain, right? Because even though logically she knows she's safe, her right side of the brain is telling her she's not safe. So Mm -hmm. things like EMDR, brain spotting, havening techniques, these uh, sensory motor psychotherapy. Um, these are all somatic types of therapies that help tap into that right side of the brain. So EMDR, um, it stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Um, what it's doing, it's, it's helping cross the material over from left to right brain through what's called bilateral stimulation. All bilateral stimulation means is is the two parts of the brain. The easiest way to explain this is, you know, when we're in REM sleep, our eyes are actually moving back and forth. And the purpose of that back and forth is to consolidate our memories. So it's no wonder people with PTSD have sleep issues, right? Their memories are not getting consolidated. So what EMDR does is it helps cross that material over to help consolidate our memories, make them whole, and feel like you can let it go. So how it works is uh, the bilateral stimulation is either through eye movements that go back and forth. It could be through what they're called tappers that buzz in your hand back and forth or tapping. So tapping can be on your shoulders. It could be on your knees that go back. So the point is back and forth, right? Bilateral. And so what the therapist would help you do is pick the memories that you want to address and activate you a little bit right? They'll ask you, you know, what image sticks out to you as the worst part of the trauma? What's the negative belief about yourself when you think of this trauma? What feelings come up with it? And where do you feel it in your body? Now that activates somebody a little bit, right? And once you have that information, that's when the therapist will apply the bilateral stimulation to help the brain work through it, not just by talking, but um, more somatically. So that's one one modality. Another modality is called uh, brain spotting. And brain spotting is really wonderful. Um, the theory behind it is where you look impacts how you feel. So I'll give an example. I have a woman that when she speaks about her sexual abuse and she looks to her right, she goes into a free state. She can't move. She feels immobile. Same exact story. And she looks to her left she goes into a, a rage state. So these are called brain spots, right? One is on this side, one is on this side. And so the therapist helps the client find this brain spot with a pointer. This is where it gets a little weird, with a pointer. And once you find where that freeze or fight flight uh, response is, the therapist holds the pointer in that spot while the client just stares at it. And it, it helps release whatever 
memory is associated with that. Sometimes it's a sensation, sometimes it's feelings, sometimes it's images. Uh, it's a little bit similar to EMDR, just done differently. So that's brain spotting. It's just so interesting to listen to this because I feel like um, at least like even like five years ago, when you look up PTSD, one, you only really see it as relating to like veterans. And then two, like talk therapy and medication seem to be what the treatment is that's suggested. So it's just really interesting to me hearing all of these unique, more like hands-on ways of treatment. Um, but at the same time, it also sounds like, you know, from the patient's perspective and like from experience, it feels like, um, you know, these things like bring a lot of stuff up and make the patients have to, you know, go through them head on, which in a way I feel like is even more effective than just having like a conversation about it. Sure, sure. Yeah. It is a lot of work, but I mm -hmm. think if you, the audience was, was listening to this, if you have a trauma, I, I really want to instill hope because find a trauma therapist, not just a regular therapist, find a trauma therapist because a trauma therapist will have the, edu hopefully, the education to lead you through the treatment in a way that doesn't have to completely mess you up. Um, can I tell you a little bit about how I, I view therapy? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so I, I look at it in three stages. The first stage is, is what's called treating the symptoms. So what does that mean? That means that let's say someone comes in and they have nightmares, they have flashbacks, they have body memories, right? I'm not going to throw them into processing trauma. The first step is let's give you tools, right? Sometimes uh, I'm, I'm not a big, big medication pusher, but sometimes medication is needed um, to help manage the intensity of the symptoms. But I, I first would want to try, let me just load you up with coping skills right? Um, somatically as well. Once I can see that the client is able to use these skills and manage their symptoms better, then we can talk about phase two, which is trauma processing. And some clients, they want to tell me every detail about their trauma and that's perfectly fine. I will hear it. And some don't. And that's perfectly fine. No therapist should ever force you to talk about something if you do not want to. And the beauty of the modalities, the two at least that I described, I, I've done EMDR and brain spotting with people where I don't know anything. I know there's a trauma. I can, I, I can figure out maybe what happened just given the symptoms, but they have never had to tell me their entire story because you don't need to with EMDR and brain spotting. Okay. So don't feel like you have to talk about the trauma. There's many ways to process. And then the third phase is called integration into life. What does that mean? So once the client has worked through their trauma, what does that look like now? Right? So for my clientele, I'm working mainly with sexual abuse survivors. Well, if, if I've worked through my sexual abuse, what does this mean now in terms of sex? What does it mean in terms of intimacy, relationships, men or women, right? Whatever, whoever. Um, what does this mean now? right? If I had social phobia because of my trauma, what does this mean now that I've, I've done working on my trauma, right? So it's how do I get back into the world safely, 
right? So this is how I look at trauma treatment. It's in these three stages and um, there's no order. You can be in processing and go back to grounding. You can be in integration and go back to grounding, right? And trauma memories can come back even later after you've done the work because of different life stages. What I mean by that is, you know, I've had somebody who um, did the work and when her perpetrator died, new memories came up and then came back and did more work. I had somebody else where she did a lot of work and then when she had a child that turned the age of when she was abused, came back and we did more work, right? So different stages of development are gonna bring up stuff and that's okay, it's, it's workable. Um, I just went on a long-winded spiel. No, no I, I think that's great because I think therapy in itself, like trauma aside, is intimidating. And then someone who experiences trauma, the the fear of even talking about it and thinking about talking about it to someone you don't know well, I feel like that can turn people off from therapy. So I think you kind of explaining the steps and if someone's listening that's like wanting help and not sure, I think that could like ease a lot of anxieties around it. I also think you touched on the fact that therapy isn't always just like a linear kind of model. Like you can go up and down and side and all around and um, that's normal. Um, and yeah, I just think um, those are really important things to kind of reiterate for people. And that kind of, I thought of another question, um, like what makes um, trauma therapists different than other therapists? I would say the first thing that comes to my mind is that, that they realize that trauma is in the body. That has to, has to be part of it. Talk therapy is not enough. It's not. Again, there's very good aspects of talk therapy, like CBT, those things are needed in trauma therapy, but that alone is not going to do it. So if you're looking for a trauma therapist, just please make sure that they're trained in some capacity to work with how it shows up in the body. Okay, so one more question kind of before we wrap up. Mm -hmm. um, mental health as a whole, there's a lot of common misconceptions about what it looks like, how it's experienced. Um, for PTSD specifically, what are some of the common misconceptions that you come across or that your patients talk about experiencing? Sure. So you actually named one of them already. Um, so there's a myth that PTSD only impacts veterans, and that is just not true. Um, it, it absolutely impacts veterans, but it can impact anyone who's experienced, witnessed, or has had secondhand exposure to trauma. Um, so it's not just limited to veterans. The other big, I think, myth is that, um, that if you have PTSD, the symptoms just show up immediately after an event. And that, that is not true. Symptoms can take up to months or years even um, for them to show up. You know, I had somebody who... Um, her symptoms did not show up until she moved out of her childhood home because it wasn't safe for her stuff to show up. But once she got her own place, all of a sudden, all this anxiety and nightmares and flashbacks, 
you know, it started to appear because it was finally safe for this stuff to come out, right? Um, the other myth uh, is, you know, not everyone who has a traumatic experience is going to have PTSD, right? Um, some will not. Uh, they may have trauma, they may have stress, but they're not going to have the full-blown PTSD criteria. So I think that's important to note as well. Um, and then this I see a lot in my clients. Um, there is a myth that if you have PTSD, that you are a violent person. And that is just not true. Um, I have never felt scared with any of my clients ever um, yet. You know, that I'm sure that's possible at some point, but usually they're coming in because they're dealing with so much fear, right? Um, but there's a common misconception that people with PTSD are violent or dangerous. Uh, I, I think those are the minority and violence is not even included as part of a PTSD diagnosis. Um, but I think what's important to note about this is that people can deal with their trauma and triggers in very different ways. Um, and that reactive behavior typically comes from a place of fear and threat rather than a violent desire. Um, those people who are, are more violent and have PTSD are shown to be much higher in uh, people who also have a substance abuse disorder. I think those are the main ones that come up to my mind right now. Okay, and so just to finish up, I know you talked about, you know, some of the things that you do um, outside of your practice. Um, mm -hmm. So how can like myself and my audience stay up to date to all of those things you're doing and just any other work that you do? Yeah, so um, they're welcome to check out my website. It's www.pasadenatraumatherapy.com. Uh, or follow me on Instagram. Uh, it's Pasadena underscore trauma underscore therapy. Um, those are the two easiest ways. And, and the events for therapists are all listed on my website as well. Okay. Thank you so much for being here and having this conversation. I, I learned a lot um, and I'm sure people listening did too. Um, so yeah, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Our next guest is self-care coach, mental health advocate, and trauma survivor, Mia Hempstead. In our conversation, you will hear about what led to Mia's diagnosis of PTSD and how she experiences and manages her symptoms. We also talk about what it's like being a mother while also living with mental illness. Welcome, Mia. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Jade. I'm so excited for this. Yeah, me too. Before we get into the main topic of today, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and some of the work you do? Awesome. Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> my name is Mia. I live in Orange County right now um, in California. It's like south of LA. And I'm a mom. I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old. I'm married. Um, I'm a communications manager by day for a nonprofit, um, that fights for paid family leave policies, more equitable paid family leave policies. So social justice is really important to me. Um, 
And I guess not even by night, but in whatever pockets of time I have, I um, I run an Instagram account and a YouTube channel where I uh, just raise awareness about mental health by sharing my own journey with PTSD and depression. And uh, it started out by sharing my journey with postpartum depression and anxiety because I thought that that was just the issue, like just postpartum, just like mental illness due to having children. But then that lifted and then this whole other animal (laughs) unearthed itself. So it's kind of an evolving uh, channel that I just felt called to start three years ago and um, three and a half years ago now. Wow. And um, yeah, I get messages almost every day from people sharing how much it helps them. And it just makes me realize that Um, there's so many people struggling, you know, and we just don't talk about it. So I'm just grateful to be on your show today. And I'm grateful for the work you do because even though it can feel lonely and hard sometimes being a content creator, I don't know if you feel that it's just like, you're like, is anyone listening? You know, (laughs) but we are listening. People do. It does matter what we do matters. So, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of what I do. And I also want to just caveat that, Um, I live in Orange County now, but I'm actually from Guam. I was born and raised in Guam. It's a small island um, that is very close to Japan and the Philippines. Um, But I'm, um, my ethnicity is Mexican, German, and African Caribbean with a little bit of Irish because of slave owner interference uh, with my great, great, great grandmother. Um, So um, I, I started to, to include that in my intros of podcasts now because um, I think it's a, it's a bigger part of my story than I realize. You know, I've just been really working on figuring out where I belong. And, you know, I grew up in an island where I wasn't native and everyone asked me where I was from. But as a small child, I thought I'm from here, you know. So um, working on my sense of belonging is a a big part, I think, of my mental health journey and a part of my depression and my anxiety of always feeling like I didn't belong anywhere. So I think it's important. And I wanted to bring it up because I think there are other people out there that know what it's like being a third culture kid, know what it's like, you know, um, not really having a culture to identify with. And then society's like putting you in all these boxes. I think even just being multiracial in general is hard, even if you are very strongly connected to a culture, I think being multiracial, I think brings a whole host of issues as well um, when it comes to identity and when it comes to our mental health. So anyway, that's who I am (laughs) in a nutshell. Thank you for sharing so much. Um, I think the, you know, race and cultural part of your life and anyone's life is very important Mm -hmm. to any journey, but especially your mental health journey. And especially with the climate that we're in right now, in the US. Um, So I think it's, I'm happy you share that. And I think it's important uh, that people know that, you know, other people are are dealing with the same things. And, you know, they're not alone. So thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. And I just realized this is a podcast. So people can't see my face. Yeah. And I'm like, just want people to know. uh, Yeah. I'm a mixed race kid over here, figuring it out, along with all of the rest of you mixed race kids. (laughs) Okay, Um, so now let's kind of shift our focus. So uh, this episode is specifically focused on PTSD. Mm -hmm. Um, And I found you uh, when I was kind of 
looking through YouTube um, about stories of people who live with PTSD. Um, and I, your story stood out to me really because of the way you were able to be really clear with, with how you experience PTSD and uh, especially the way you experienced how it feels in your body. Um, and I think that that's something a lot of people don't hear about often if they're not in uh, spaces where mental health is talked about often. Um, so I definitely wanted to have you here to share some of that. Yeah. Um, so my first question is just in general, like when you were first diagnosed with PTSD, what were kind of the things leading up to it and how was the how was PTSD explained to you when you received that diagnosis yeah that's a really good question um so leading up to it I uh, was in my first year wait sorry let me think about this yeah my first year postpartum with my second child and I was going through therapy for postpartum depression and anxiety. And it was in that setup that I was like learning more about past trauma, childhood trauma, and how that was affecting my ability to fully be the mom that I wanted to be. And um, I so I started to learn more about it. And it was being recommended to like get trauma therapy, but then wasn't really ever able to do that because one of the types of trauma therapy is EMDR therapy. It's um, basically a way of reprocessing old memories and it takes a lot of energy and a lot of work and you need support. And I didn't have support at that time. You know, I am married, but, and maybe this is something other people relate to across the country, but especially in Southern California, um, people work so hard down here because it's so expensive to live here. And, um, I know people are probably like, why don't you just move? And it's like, there's a whole host of reasons why I'm here. Um, but anyway, um, basically, I started to just become more aware of the fact that, oh, there's a lot more here. There's a lot more here than just postpartum. And um, I need to unpack it. And then um, there were... So I basically was living with this increasing anxiety that was getting increasingly worse every day, every week, every month, to the point where... Um, I started to have an immense amount of back pain and it felt not like a muscle ache or a muscle pull, but like pins and needles. And it's, I, if you read about it, it's fascinating how the nervous system actually will like shoot all these frequent electrical responses in your body um, because you are just shooting your body with cortisol when you're in that state of anxiety all the time. And, um, it's not good for you, by the way. Um, but that's why when you have anxiety, the pain isn't just like, oh, I pulled a muscle lifting a heavy weight or picking up my child. It's like, it's a very distinct pins and needles, tingling feeling that is uncomfortable. And um, it would happen pretty much every day as soon as my husband would leave for work. And so it's also very like, it's also very event centered. Like you'll feel the pain when there's a certain thing happening. And like, what does that represent to me? My, my husband's gone. It means I'm on my own with two kids and a whole bunch of stuff going on in my heart and my mind that I don't know what to do with. And so there was that aspect. And then also the nightmares. So um, for me, nightmares uh, is a regular occurrence in my life. I, there's probably about nine days out of the month where my nightmares aren't as vivid. But for the rest of the time, it's basically like at night, my brain doesn't shut off. It doesn't rest. It doesn't get rejuvenated like other people. And um, 
Yeah, it's really challenging. Um, the nightmares are kind of a constant manifestation of the way that I felt throughout my childhood, just unsafe. Um, and so I just continue to feel that at night. And apparently nightmares are, are one of the hallmarks of PTSD um, as well. And then, then <laughs> because I was living under such intense sleep deprivation, then I started with the dissociation or derealization. So a disconnection from reality. So my brain can't handle all the stress and strain. So what your brain does is it just like decides to check out. So it's that feeling like when you're a kid and you're zoning out in space in class, you're like, you're just spacing out and everything gets blurry and you're kind of in your head. And it kind of is an enjoyable experience when you're a child. But as an adult, derealization is like, um, I zone out without wanting to, and I can't choose to zone back in. It's very helpless feeling. And that started to happen every day. It started to happen when I would drive with my kids in the car. And so then I stopped driving. So it's like this slow chipping away at any sort of normalcy, right? You're not sleeping. And when you're not sleeping, you're not exercising. When you're not exercising, you're not getting endorphins. And like you start not being able to leave the house. And it's just this horrible illness that just starts to take over. And it's slow. And I think even your loved ones don't see it. You know, like you really have to be talking about what you're going through. And it's another challenging thing, I think, with mental illness is because it's slow, we um, we start to think it's normal. <laughs> so, you know, and so, yeah. And anyway, so I think I would have just kept dealing with it. But then, then the sinusitis started happening. And sinusitis, for anyone who doesn't know, is when you get inflammation in your sinus cavities, which are in your forehead, your cheeks, your ears, your nose. And so basically your tissues will get inflamed and there's a variety of people are like, oh, it's just allergens, but there's actually research being done that people who have anxiety also get sinusitis. And it's because inflammation can be caused by cortisol, cortisol is caused by stress. And so um, the sinusitis got so bad, I could not breathe through my nose at all. And I would kind of have constant uh, headaches because obviously we know what it feels like when we're congested, right? So it was just really slow and it got to the point like I couldn't run after my kids. I couldn't play with them at the playground. Like I just became so sick. And um, the challenging part was I really didn't have, a, I don't really have a support system here in Orange County. And so I didn't really, I wasn't really around friends who like, I guess I felt safe talking to about this stuff or whatever. And like, I know I would tell my husband and like, you know, he was like, yeah, like, let's have you go to therapy. It's just a really slow process of figuring it all out. I think that's one of the hardest things when you have mental illness. It just takes a long time. And then, yeah. So, um, and then I had a really traumatic event happen. I think it was September or October where I was going to have to like be, uh, in proximity to one of the people who really hurt me when I was a kid, who's connected to my trauma. And uh, that really, um, I didn't anticipate what a reaction my body was going to have to that. So I started having panic attacks. And then I started to have serious suicidal ideation. So then all of a sudden, my brain is constantly fantasizing about death and wanting to die. And um, I think, again, it's just our brain just being like, I'm done. I can't do it anymore, you know? And it was really scary. You know, it was they were unwanted thoughts. You know, I, I want to be here. I have a lot of dreams and plans for my life. And I have children and a husband that I love. And it was a very, really rickety time. So this is all in 2019. And then I finally um, 
I was very scared to take medication. Like I didn't think I was the kind of person that needed it. And then I thank God heard a podcast of a woman who I really admired says she takes medication every day to function. And I was like in shock. I'm, I'm honestly shocked and I'm appalled that how many people are taking medication every day and they just don't talk about it. And it's not anyone's job, but I really don't think I would have gotten on medication without that. Like without that, like that story of someone being like, yeah, I take it every day. I'm a mom. I run a podcast. I do, you know, I was just so impressed. And she had her sister on and her sister was also talking about how she takes medication every day. And I just, I can't tell you, Jade, like that changed my life. Like I could cry. Mm -hmm. Like I was my fourth wedding anniversary. My husband and I went on our first getaway ever from our children. Like we, we didn't have a honeymoon. And the whole time I was there, I was struggling with suicidal ideation. Like I couldn't enjoy it. Like I felt horrible. And so then that really pushed me to go and find a psychiatrist. I trusted. I got clinically evaluated. All I checked all the boxes for PTSD and it was explained to me, you know, we think it's only people who go to war, but it's just anyone who lives with this trauma that's physically and mentally debilitating. And for these reasons, right, chronic nightmares, et cetera, et cetera disassociation, disconnecting yourself from reality is another hallmark of PTSD. And, um, and then I started on medication, I started on a pediatric level dose, which is a child level dose of medication. And I was really lucky that I started to feel the effects of the medication within two weeks, usually it takes four to six weeks, depending. And sometimes when people start medication, it doesn't work for them. And they have to switch meds a lot of times, like I heard one woman say that she it took her 13 different meds to find the one that works for her. So it takes a lot of patience and it's a very challenging process. And I was very lucky. Um, and I remember the day I woke up and I didn't like the suicidal ideation was gone. And I just felt like a completely different person and it honestly saved my life. Um, and then this year, which is a new development in my story, I haven't really shared publicly until now. Um, I actually just got off of that medication about six or eight weeks ago. Um, I kind of grew out of it. And that can happen sometimes. People don't talk about that either, where you grow out of it or you grow out of the dose and then they want to up your dose. And so I started to up my dose and upping my dose wasn't working. And so the next recommendation was that I try a different medication. And I, I'm at a point in my journey where I'm finally in trauma therapy. I'm doing EMDR therapy every week. I'm lucky enough to have really great health insurance through my job, which is just a whole nother thing I could just get angry about that I had to have a job that had good health insurance in order to get trauma therapy, right? It's just anyone should be able to get this healing. But yeah, so now I really want to just, um, I want to let my brain heal. And this is such a great opportunity because I have trauma therapy, I can afford weekly therapy, and my husband doesn't have a job right now. So he's home every single day, uh, because of the pandemic. So he's home every day. Mm -hmm. So if I'm having a particularly rough day, I can have a rough day. Whereas when I was a mom on my own with my children, I couldn't afford to have a rough day. Like who's going to feed these kids? Who's going to change their diapers? Who's going to take them to the playground? Who's going to bathe them and feed them? You know, you can't, I couldn't afford to have a rough day. And that's what's so devastating is like living with mental illness is like means you have a, a pretty much, cause I track my cycle. Um, 20 out of the 30 days in the month, I'm having really rough days really like challenging time. And, um, and that is partly because I'm not on medication anymore. I'm like totally opening up the floodgates. Right. And I'm living through it. And I just pushing through with the hope that I will 
keep moving through the other side of all of this, right? But yeah, so that's that's like the whole journey in a nutshell from uh, 2019 until now. And man, it can feel lonely sometimes. I'm going to be honest. Um, but I know I'm not alone. I think that's part of why I create. Um, it's part of why I show up on Instagram and I share some things and I try to give I try to give hope and inspiration and also teach what I know because I have been on a very active healing journey for the last seven years when I woke up seven years ago and kind of realized, wow, I, I actually went through a lot of trauma and I need to acknowledge this. And that started seven years ago and it's been a long journey since then. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's that's something I, I noticed as you were going through your story is how active you have been. Um during your journey. And I think, um, you know, there's a lot of people who kind of, which is kind of my experience where, you know, you, you get a diagnosis of sorts, but you're not really active in it. You're kind of just floating along yeah. uh, the process of it. Um, something interesting that stood out to me was uh, your experience with medication and how uh, like hearing that podcast kind of made you realize the benefits of it. Mm-hmm. And I think there's so many different experiences when it comes to psychiatric meds. Um, like for me, I've been on meds for anxiety and depression since I was 12. Wow. And I, you know, my opinions on it are on both sides of the yep. spectrum, but I'm also very aware of how much it allows me to be able to get through a day. Yeah. And that's something that I feel like people sometimes don't understand. And um, psychiatric meds get a really bad rap. And I like, it's funny that you mentioned that because I have like an episode planned uh, to kind of dive deeper into that. But um, it was interesting to hear kind of your experience with that. Um, And meds work so different for everyone. Yeah. Um, and I'm also like one of the people where it's like they'll work for a certain amount of time and then the effects won't be as strong and then I'll have to switch. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think that was also important to mention um, that just the journey, even if you have a mental illness, this that's the same diagnosis as someone else. It's going to look different and Absolutely. react different mm-hmm. to treatment. Yeah, I mean, you know what I really would have loved when I was in the depths of that trauma and my body was remembering so much last year because of the traumatic event, I would have loved to go to some sort of intensive care unit, like for psychiatric care, to just like have some intensive trauma therapy. Who can afford that? (laughs) You know, who can afford to go do that and leave their kids, right, with somebody else? You know, it's just... um, there's so many different paths and, you know, medication, when I upped my dose this year, cause I did try the upping the dose, um, I got acne and I, uh, it's, you know, it might not seem like a big deal considering this medication saved my life. And, you know, I don't care that I have acne. I'm glad I'm alive, but you know, it's like, you have to weigh out the pros and cons for you. I wasn't getting that many benefits from the medication anymore. I was getting like a lot of acne and I'm, it's been weak, so I've healed from it, but it's, I've never had acne. And so it was like actually really 
uh, hard for me. Like it's kind of changed how I look at myself and how I show up for my day. And it, it sounds silly, but um, I think it's just important to constantly weigh the pros and cons and also evaluate what you can afford. Because last year, um, all I could afford was medication. Like medication is affordable, you know, going to trauma therapy isn't. And so, um, you know, it's just, you do the best you can with the time and energy and resources you have. It's like one of my mantras. I repeat it all the time. And I, to myself and to my clients, because I think we get stuck on, well, I wish I could do this thing. I know this might help me. And it's like, girl, but can you, can you afford to do that right now? You know, and it's like, don't, don't give up on yourself because you have this ideal of what your treatment should look like. Just keep fighting for your life and whatever that looks like. And that's the thing. It's like, you got to surround yourself with people who understand what that's like, because I swear like 20 days out of the month, I feel like I'm fighting for my life, but I don't look like it. And it's very hard to be in that space. And I think we, you know, for me personally, I need a lot of validation. Like I, I need people to be like, oh, wow, I really see like you're fighting for your life. It's totally okay if you need to like take it slow today. I had to learn and have to learn to keep being that person that validates my own struggle. Like I have to just be the one that's like, Mia, you know, your body, you're struggling today. Here's how, here's how we're going to approach it. And I just think it's so important for those of us with mental illness. We could get so exhausted trying to explain ourselves to other people and trying to get people to honor our struggle and to get it. And let me just tell you, you're living with mental illness. You don't have energy for that. Spend that energy honoring your own struggle and and honoring it, not just by respecting what you're going through, but meeting yourself where you're at by trying your very best to get yourself the support and tools that you need. And there was a time when all I could afford was a $15 book by Brene Brown to read about mental health and rising through your trauma. And now I can afford to go to trauma therapy every week, you know, and I don't take that for granted, but you really got to just keep fighting. You got to keep meeting yourself where you're at. Yeah, I I completely agree. I think there's such like a a, a certain image mm-hmm. in people's mind of what mental health treatment looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, but even something I've learned in the past like two years is that, you know, he, treatment and healing are two different things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can get some healing in the westernized form of treatment, but the real healing comes with like looking and feeling how you are and seeing where you are and figuring out what things work specifically for you. Um, and I think that's hard. <laughs> that's it's not really easy. hard. That's what I'm going through and, now. Like going yeah. through trauma therapy, I'm telling my therapist, I go through half a box of tissues every freaking session. And I was telling her like, I just hate, I feel like I thought I got through all this and now I feel all these things again. And she was like, you know, as, as kindly as she could, she was just like, you, you got to a place where you could function alongside those things, all that baggage, right? Medication helps us to do that, helps us function alongside the baggage. But now you're not on medication. And now all this stuff that you lived alongside is now taking front and center stage and you have to face it. And now we're facing it. And she told me, you feel raw and kind of overwhelmed because we just went through trauma therapy. She's like, but you have to normalize this. This isn't something to be scared of. This isn't something to run away from. This means that you're doing the work and you're opening up the wounds and you're addressing them and you're moving through them because suppression, 
And like, let me be clear. I, I think there was a time in my life where if I opened that can of worms, it would have sent me over the edge. Like it, I pretty much did. Like I was suicidal last year, but I'm at a place now where I have the support system and I have the therapist where I can open the can of worms safely. Right. So like, I'm definitely not saying like, oh, you know, don't smoke that weed or like, don't take those drugs, you know, um, and, this sounds terrible. It's like Mia's for drugs. It's like, no, Mia just wants you to stay on board and I want you to do whatever you need to do to stay on board, but stay on board. Don't like black out and numb yourself to the point that you're not even really on board either. Right. We don't want to swing too far on the pendulum. What I am trying to say though, is like, now I'm at the phase of my healing journey where I am. I'm not just trying to survive. I'm trying to heal. And it feels like I'm failing because I feel like crap most of the time. But my therapist helped remind me like, but this means that you are, you're, you're being brave and you're going back and you're reprocessing and that takes so much energy. And so I'm just normalizing feeling like crap. (laughs) Like I'm normalizing it and I'm like not letting it make me um, have a crap day. And so what that means is for instance, this morning, I still managed to go out to a park with my kids and enjoy that beautiful California, Southern California sun that we have down here and the blue skies. And like my husband went to Whole Foods and grabbed some stuff for us to eat. And, you know, would I have loved to go and do like a massive LA hike? Yes, but I don't have energy for that. I do what I can do. I live my life as much as I can live it. And I might spend the rest of this day on the couch, but that's okay. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm working, I'm healing. And just, I think we got to be, we got to embrace that messiness of healing. We got to embrace it. Yeah, I agree. And something you said a little earlier was how, um, you know, like you can't see a lot of these things on the outside. Like if, if it was more of a, like, physical illness like Mm -hmm. diabetes or cancer or something Mm -hmm. um people definitely get a hell of a lot more sympathy for things like that yeah but as you you know go through your day living with something that's invisible and that validation like I agree with you like it's so hard to feel validated in your struggle Mm -hmm. when you can't (laughs) show outwardly all the time that you are in that struggle yeah um and finding that self-validation is really important but also really hard Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. something I like about how you're talking about your journey is like you're constantly saying like being in a struggle like 90 percent of the month it sucks but that's the way that you're going to get to feeling great mm-hmm. 90% mm-hmm. of the week like it's it's not the end of the world it doesn't mm-hmm. mean your life as a whole is terrible mm-hmm. it just means right now you're doing the nitty-gritty of the work that you need to do so you can thrive even more yeah exactly yeah. I mean one of the things that because let me be honest with you I <laughs> my therapist laughs at me because she will not say that we're going to do EMDR therapy. I have to say we're going to do it. And I've gone through weeks where I said we're going to do it and I end up spending the whole session just talking. And um, it's because I'm avoiding it. And so I, after a long break, we came back and we've done two sessions in a row, two whole sessions in a row. And um, yeah, so like, 
it's not easy and it feels like something I want to run away from. But the, what motivates me is the hope that I will move through some of this baggage that I know is holding me back in my life. Like, no, a lot of people think just are like, let's just muscle through mental illness, right? But what is mental illness taking away from you? Like, what is untreated mental illness taking away from you? Unhealed trauma taking away from you? And I remember being at a talk, a conference for mental health, and this psychiatrist was saying, people always talk about the side effects that come with psychiatric drugs, but they don't talk about the side effects from untreated mental illness. You know, the wear and tear on your nervous system, the wear and tear on your energy, on your body, the constant cortisol, the the poor sleep and what that does to longevity when you're not sleeping well, right? It's like, we just think, oh, but this label says this might happen to me. And it's just like, I really encourage people to challenge that and to wake up and realize that mental illness is an illness. The same way that you would go get treatment for diabetes or the flu, you should get treatment for your mental illness because it is doing stuff to your body. And I don't say that to scare people. I say that um, to hopefully spare some people any more years of unnecessarily suffering. You know, every time I've done something for my mental health, I always am like, I go through this period of like, why the heck? Didn't I just do this two years ago? You know what I'm saying? And then I got to like have some self-compassion and realize, well, because I never have had anyone in my family ever talk about mental illness or mental health or get treatment for it. I've never seen anyone get treatment. As far as I know, I'm the only one. Um, And when I talk about it, I'm pretty sure most of my family thinks I'm crazy. And that's perfectly fine because you know what? At the end of the day, they don't have to wake up and live with this. I do. And so um, if I'm going to live my life, I need to be responsible for my life. And that means being responsible for my treatment. But another thing that motivates me that I wanted to share with everyone is back in the day when I had zero money, I went to a free support group and I was sitting at a table with people in their 50s and 60s and even 70s who were just debilitated who you could see the the pain of trauma and mental illness had been wearing on their brains and bodies for decades. I mean, people were at the table who just re, like just unearthed the fact that they were um, sexually assaulted in their childhood, multiple people, and they didn't really acknowledge it until they were in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. And I, I'm 26, and um, people think I'm in my mid-30s. <laughs> which they get really embarrassed because like, they're like, oh my gosh, it wasn't because of how you looked. And it's like, I'm like, I know I look really tired. It's fine. But they're like, you're just so wise. And it's just like, cause I've lived through too much. So I don't also feel like that's a compliment. Cause it's like, I would rather have just had a childhood, but it's okay. Anyway, sorry, getting distracted, but I'm sitting at this table. Right. And I'm just like, wow, I have, I'm so blessed. I'm so lucky that I, here I am at, at that time. I was like 23, 24 acknowledging all the horrible things that happened to me. And I have this opportunity to start my healing now rather than starting it when I'm older. And I just want anyone who's listening to this who is older, like never, ever, ever, ever compare your journey to anybody else's. Like, I just hope that you can hear this and go, okay, enough. I'm going to start taking care of myself right now because life is so short, especially as we've seen this year, life can change in an instant. And yeah, even if I might sounds morbid, but like die before I really feel a lot of healing. Um, at least I know I tried, at least I know I stopped abandoning myself. I stopped neglecting myself and I started to take care of myself. And so, yeah, I just have to really tap into those things every day to keep me going that like, I'm lucky and I'm going to keep going.
Yeah, and I, I think that's the blessing of the age of media and social media right now is people, young people get exposed to people who are struggling and they're like, oh, they can relate and they yes. can start this work early. Exactly. Um, We're so lucky because our parents' generation and their generation before them, you weren't allowed to talk about mental illness. And if you do research, if you had any semblance of a mental illness, you were checked into a psychiatric institute and done God knows what to. So it was like a life or death legitimate fear. Like we're so lucky now that there it's becoming normalized to talk about it. Therapy is becoming more accessible. You can go to therapy on your computer. That wasn't even an option before this pandemic for a lot of people. So we're just so lucky. And I just try to remember that and not, fo- you know, just to help me keep going. Yeah. That's definitely something I, I remind myself of too. And and that's just kind of like makes all of this work uh, like more exciting and motivates mm-hmm. me more because yes. I know even though there's a lot of stuff out there encouraging people to get the help, there can never be too much. No, there can't. There can't, you know, and I see more people popping up being like, oh, I'm going to start like a YouTube channel about mental health. And I'm like, good for you. You know, I'm so happy because, you know, everyone's going to resonate differently. Like everyone has a different journey. Everyone's got different experiences and there's just, there can never be too many people. You're right. Um, and, and kind of speaking to that, I know you talked about some of the treatment that you are doing for PTSD. Um, but I was wondering kind of more of the like personal and like specific things that you do for your healing to help manage your PTSD symptoms because mm-hmm. um, like we were talking about it's a very individual journey yeah um I guess this is kind of like talking about the day-to-day right like kind of like how I survive okay um I have ritualized my self-care and when I say ritualized it means it's not just something I do every once in a while it is like biblical <laughs> It is like non-negotiable, right? I just, I figured out how to have a consistent self-care routine and I have a couple of, so rolling it back. Basically, it's really basic. It's like, I make sure I brush and floss my teeth and wash my face and moisturize it every night. That took me my whole life to figure out how to do that. You know, it was really hard for me to do those things. And I used to be super ashamed to say that there were years I didn't brush my teeth at night. Um, but then I was talking to some other people with mental illness and they said they struggled with the same thing. So you're not alone. If you struggle with that, picking up that toothbrush just seems overwhelming. That was actually the cornerstone habit. I made that a goal for like my new year's resolution was like brush my teeth every night in like 2017. And, um, when I say cornerstone habit, it means once you get one thing down, it starts to create a ripple effect in your life, you start to build momentum. So you have to figure out why it's so hard to build that habit and then do whatever you can to make it easier. So for me, it was buying my very first electric toothbrush in my whole life. And I thought, this is ridiculous. I don't spend more than two bucks on a toothbrush, right? At Walmart. And I'm buying this expensive toothbrush. So I got a Quip toothbrush. And the re- what really resonated with me was that it buzzes when it's time to switch to a different quadrant, and then it turns off after two minutes. And so I honestly think I had undiagnosed OCD. It's definitely much better now, but I, I would brush my teeth for like 15 minutes. 
and it was really bad for my gums. It caused gum erosion. So I definitely probably had some OCD back in the day. Um, and so I really was like, wow, this toothbrush is is going to turn off and tell me when it's done. And I also would get anxiety about my toothbrush, like going past three months and forgetting to replace it. But Quip like sends you a new brush head. And I can't believe I'm giving them all this free advertising because they're not paying me to do any of this stuff. Quip sponsor me. But um, I'm telling you, that was a game changer for me. Um, I started to brush my teeth every night. And then after like several months of doing that successfully, then I started to add in flossing every night. And it sounds so simple. I probably spent half of 2017 building just one habit. But then this one habit led to now washing my face every night and moisturizing it. And that made me feel so loved and cared for. And then that led to me making my bed every morning. And that just became another cornerstone for my day. And then um, exercise, like exercise cannot be negotiable. Every person needs to be exercising. And if you have chronic pain like me, where your back is always tingling and hurting, then do what I did when I had really bad chronic pain, which was 10 minutes of just gentle stretching in the morning. It was like, okay, I can't do the 30 minute HIIT workouts I used to do back in the day, but what can I do? Every day it's like, what can I do? And it's just like, I will move hell or high water to exercise. It has to happen. It's like the endorphins, like, and whenever it got hard, I would just think, okay, well, I don't have 20 minutes, but I can do 10. And if I don't have 10, then I'll do five. But why can't we honor our bodies? Like, why do we just use our bodies like machines to go, 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 push, 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 more emails, more writing, more work. And it's like, when are you going to stop and give back to your body that you're working like a horse, you know? And, and so to me, it's just so important to work that in. And so I, there's just so many little things to do throughout the day. And I don't do all of them perfectly. Like when I'm having a really hard time and I'm not sleeping well, um, like I might peel it all back to like the most basic things. Cause there's other things I like to like make sure I eat healthy and drink water, but it's just like, you do what you can, but I have this arsenal of tools that I know help me feel better. And so when I'm feeling super lost in my head, I'm like, okay, I know I should probably exercise or like, I know I should take a shower or there was a season in the beginning of the pandemic where I took a bath like almost every other night and I bought myself some Epsom salts. And it's because I didn't have the energy to shower. It's like hard to shower when you're depressed. And so, and it's uh, being a black person and having dry skin, like you got to lotion your whole dang body. Every time you shower, it's so much work. And so, especially when you have sinusitis and you can't breathe, it's like, I'm out of breath. And so I started to do this thing where I would put uh, jojoba oil in my bath. And when you get out, you're moisturized. It's like the most incredible thing. So I have all these hacks for when I'm really depressed and I can't, you know, and like, even like when I'm really depressed, I don't want to shout. I don't want to brush my teeth. But I'm like, it's only going to take two minutes. It's only going to be 120 seconds. You've got this. And even if your teeth don't feel perfectly clean, because I, ideally I actually like to rest my teeth for five minutes, but it's like, but two minutes is better than nothing. I really have to coach myself like through every activity of the day. And it's a lot, but um, it gets me through and it keeps me healthy. And I would so much rather be doing these things to cope than other things. Like I used to bite my nails. Um, I used to, um, pick my skin a lot and, uh, 
what else? A- addiction to my phone, like just completely escape reality and be on my phone. So um, yeah, I just try to have my arsenal of tools. And so I just want to encourage everyone listening, like figure out what that cornerstone thing is for you. Like what's that one thing that you need to do? Is it like brushing your teeth? Do you need a different toothbrush that makes you excited to brush your teeth? Is it like um, taking a bath? Like, do you need to get a big bag of Epsom salts from Target and just keep it by your bathtub so that you know, oh yeah, that reminded me, I'm going to just sit in some hot water right now. Um, And honestly, it starts to get fun. I'm honestly very proud of myself for developing all these rituals that I do. And um, I mean, I could, this could be a whole other podcast episode, but what those rituals have done for my, my self-worth is incredible. Like, I mean, after going through so much neglect and abuse and now being an adult and realizing that I can treat myself with so much care and love, is um truly life-changing like it's changed so much for me and it's like so validating to honor your struggle through a hot bath or through some delicious tea and to like write it down and put it on your grocery list or like buy yourself your own flowers for yourself to honor like the same way like if someone you love was sick and you'd bring them flowers like write, you know, go write yourself a nice note, get well soon, no, buy yourself some flowers. And it really is so impactful for your self-worth. It starts to change the narrative because if you were raised to believe that you're nothing but a burden and you're, and you were neglected, you weren't cared for the way you needed. And then you start taking ownership of how you treat yourself. You realize, oh, wait, I'm an adult now and I get to choose how I live my life and how I treat myself. And so it's very empowering highly recommend it (laughs) yeah that's that's definitely I feel like when you start to when you get into adulthood and and you're even just physically away from your parents Mm -hmm. even if they weren't you know the best and you did experience neglect as a child it's kind of like whoa like where where am I supposed to get that love and support Mm -hmm. from and finding it within yourself something I struggle with which I feel like it's is hard. something a lot of people struggle with yeah. really hard is like so key because on the days where I do spend extra time on self-care and you know make it a point to care for myself I feel better mm-hmm. um yeah. so yeah I think that's really important for people to know as well Yes, I I love that. You know, yeah, it is hard. There are definitely days. I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with the Enneagram, if you've taken the test, but but I'm an Enneagram three. And that just means like I'm an achiever. And I used to be a horrendous workaholic. And so I still have these tendencies where it's like you just spent 30 extra minutes on your makeup when you could have did 30 extra minutes of work, you could have gotten ahead. Like I still have those voices but I've built up enough evidence now from ritualizing self-care that I'm like, shut up. <laughs> you know, I'm like, be quiet brain. You know, you're going to thank me later. And I know that it's going to help me. Like I know. And even if you, it doesn't, cause we often see on social media, it's like, when you take care of yourself, like you're going to be more productive and it's going to, it's going to make your work even better. And you know, sometimes I take care of myself and my work isn't better. And I take care of myself and I'm not more efficient because I had no sleep for the last seven days because of nightmares. Self-care doesn't always have to be about improving and boosting the quality of your work and everything else in your life. It's just affirming your humanity. It's affirming 
what you need. And um, it can just be for those reasons. Like, and I think also like, that's why so many people like we get into maybe relationships we don't really want to, or we get into commitments we don't really need because we leave our parents and then we wonder, oh wait, who's supposed to nurture me now? And then be like, oh, I need a boyfriend or I need a girlfriend. I need a relationship. I need someone in my life that's nurturing me. And it's like, that's not a safe place to be entering into relationships from. You know, you want to enter a relationship as a whole person. And part of how you do that is by nurturing yourself. You are capable of nurturing yourself. And that's challenging because then we have to learn to like ourselves and we have to learn to enjoy our own company. So, yeah. Yeah. And I liked how you talked about, um, you know, self-care doesn't always help you feel productive, Mm -hmm. but something I remind myself of is that self-care is productive. And yeah, it's, that's something that I, I constantly remind myself of because it's productive and and self-care takes work. (laughs) Yeah. Like it takes work to get yourself to get in that bath or to take the time to brush Mm -hmm. your teeth. Mm -hmm. It's, it's not easy. And reminding yourself of that at the end you're like oh I did that that was productive mm-hmm. so, yeah exactly. that's what I remind myself of yeah I mean yeah. think about like you know I mean this might be a no-brainer for some people who make their bed every day but there was a while I'm like why am I gonna make my bed when I'm just gonna get back in my bed right um because <laughs> yeah it's like because we take care of things that we have that's just important. You just take care of what you have. Things will last longer when you take care of what you have, including you, (laughs) you know, including your skin and your teeth and your body, you'll last longer. (laughs) You will feel better about yourself. So yeah, but it does take work. And especially as a mom, I have, I had to work through a whole nother layer of you shouldn't do this. You're a bad mom. You should be spending this time with your kids. You haven't practiced your sight words with your son, you know, and realizing like, how I'm a mom, but I'm still allowed to have Mia time. You know, where did I get this idea that I needed to be with my children 110% of the time? I'll tell you where Instagram moms unfollowed all those people. (laughs) And I realized I just want to, I want to define motherhood for me. And for me, that still means that I have a life outside of my children um, every day. I have time where I do things for myself. And so, yeah, I just, um, it can be hard for people who are caregivers or parents also for those reasons. Yeah, and and that's a great segue into my next question. Um, it's just, you know, what is it like being a mom and uh, living with PTSD, but also just mental illness in general? I feel like um, among all of the parts of your story that are unique, you are a young mom. Um, and I know that there's a lot to come that comes with that. Um So like in our last few minutes, I'm just wondering if you can share a little bit about what that experience has been like. Well, thanks for asking that question. I think you might be the first person who's asked that question. Um, Oh, yeah. (laughs) You think more people would ask that because it is it is an added element, you know, and it and it's lonely because a lot of people who are young today are not married and they don't have kids. And I do not shame them for that because it is hard. And so, you know, do what you feel is, you know, your calling. But um, it also means there's not a lot of people to talk to about what I'm going through um, who understand it. So I would say I have a lot of guilt that I'm currently working through, uh, especially with my first child, because I was very much deep in my healing journey when I had him. And then on top of that, I became a caregiver for my brother out of nowhere. And I wasn't 
it wasn't really an option. He was really sick. And so all of a sudden I have my, my, my baby boy and then I'm caregiving and I'm struggling with unknown mental illness that I hadn't diagnosed yet. Right. Um, so I would say that is challenging and that the most important thing that you can do is get validation for what you feel, get support for any current mental challenges you're going through and also learn to practice self-compassion. So self-compassion is something that I wasn't really aware of until I read this book called Radical Acceptance by Dr. Tara Brock. And it's, I can't believe I never learned about self-compassion before this, but now it's something I invoke every single day. It's just basically meeting yourself where you're at and saying, it's understandable why you feel this way. It's understandable why you struggled with your temper in those early days. You weren't getting any sleep and you were being asked to do way too much and you had no support system. Let's forgive ourselves and keep moving forward. And um, I'm really just working on that and also working on uh, not fixating on the past, but learning to keep uh, making the most of the present. And, you know, one of the things is like my son really loves being with me. And I noticed that because I have all this guilt about how I feel like I failed him in his first two years of life, I noticed I I didn't want to play with him. Like I didn't want to be with him because, you know, we all have that feeling where we feel ashamed and we don't want to like be around the person that we feel ashamed, like that we hurt or something, even though I didn't hurt him, but I just had these I also had these insane ideals at the time as well. I was running in the wrong circles, hanging out in mom groups with moms who were practically competing with each other for perfectionism. And so that also didn't help. And so I really am looking back and like having to um, meet my that past version of me with compassion and say like, I really was doing the best I can with what I knew at the time. And I'm, I have been actively working on myself. And today I spent some time with him. We had a picnic outside and he was like, mommy, I'm so, what did he say? I love you all day. That's how his his way of saying, I love you very much. I love you all day, mom. And I'm so excited you're here. I'm so excited to be with you. Yeah. It's precious. It's so precious. And I can, I'm going to be honest, like when he would say that to me before, I would feel even more ashamed. Like this precious boy deserves so much better than me. Right. But there's this mantra that one of my therapists told me that I have to keep invoking because you can tell that my motherhood and mental illness is still very much something I'm navigating. And it's, you're the best mom for your kids and they're the best children for you. Like you were made for each other and I'm enough for him. He sees me as enough. What's getting in the way of our relationship is me not thinking I'm enough. So it's a very much an active thing. And I'm realizing that now that I've ritualized my self-care and I've taken my care of myself and I've got that down, I need to start ritualizing certain practices in my motherhood that help me to feel connected to my children and to my purpose as a mother as well. And so uh, that means probably like having every other Saturday is like only time with this child. And I do this thing and it's like, we do an activity that we love to do together. And it doesn't have to be that big of a deal. It could even just be like, you just make sure that on Saturday mornings you're reading a story together, but it's really ritualizing it because otherwise, you know, my mental illness will run the show. Like it will make me go on my phone or ignore. And I have to, I have to schedule it in and make it non-negotiable in order to keep building those neuron connections that it's safe to be here with my son. It's safe to sit down 
and play. I never experienced that as a child. So I think that's why I avoid it. Because to me, mothers are just supposed to sacrifice and slave away and work and cook and clean. And so I feel like I'm a mom when I'm doing that. But now I need to teach myself that I, I being a mom can also be having picnics with your kid on a Saturday morning. So yeah, I'm really just trying to redefine and rebuild that from scratch, right? And that's the thing that's hard, I think, for those of us who didn't have that stuff modeled to us, is generationally, we have no blueprint. And we got to create all this stuff from scratch, you know, and acknowledging that that takes a lot of time and energy. So yeah, that's where I'm at with that. Thank you so much for sharing. I feel like that's, especially when you're in the thick of it, that's very vulnerable. So I really appreciate it. And I feel like I'm not even a mom, but like, I feel like that just imagining myself in the future, hearing that helps me. Um, and I feel like that hearing that will help a lot of people. I hope so, because so, one of the things I hear from people is like, they're like, I'm so broken. How could I possibly have a child? You know, and it's like, I mean, definitely be working on your healing, but know that you'll probably have brokenness for your whole life. None of us are getting it through this life unscathed. <laughs> brokenness is normal. Like, and um, I want my kids to know that mommy struggles with stuff. I actually, for the very first time in my son's life, he's four, I had to explain to him my mental illness. I never, I thought it was going to be when he's eight, but I actually needed to explain it to him now. And he understood honestly way more than you realize kids are so smart and it just makes him more empathetic with me when I, when he asked me to play for the sixth time and I'm like, I just really can't today, bud. Like, here's what I can do with you. I can read to you on the couch or we could watch a show together, but I just can't sit on the floor. My body's hurting or I haven't gotten sleep. And he understands because he knows mommy struggles with, you know, X, Y, and Z. So yeah, I think I just want all the people out there who are dreaming one day of having a family, like, don't wait till you're perfect. Like, you're not gonna, it's never gonna come. <laughs> so yeah, I just have the right support around you. You know, I think friendship and people who have the same similar struggles is really important. Yeah. And and I think, uh, again, touching on support and having the same struggles, hearing stories like you, since, you know, young people are on uh, the internet so much, mm -hmm. the fact that your story is here is very helpful as well. Thank you so much. I appreciate you organizing this and creating <laughs> creating this show. I know it's a lot of work and it's a commitment and I just wish you much success and prosperity in your work. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, so before we go, um, how can myself and my audience continue to support you and hear more about your story and follow what you're doing? Well, thank you for asking that. I really appreciate it. So um, I have a YouTube channel that hasn't been posted on, but I will get something out there soon. I made this awesome like self-care inspiration video where I start to share some of my self-care rituals with you all. So go to my YouTube channel. It's Mia Hemstad. Subscribe there. Um, I post on Instagram almost every day. Um, I'm sharing self-care stuff and I'm also talking about racism, of course, because of what's going on and being part black. It's very important to me. So know that you'll get a little bit of both there. And, um, and I also, I can't believe I already forgot this. I've been working so hard on this and I finally have been taking a break, but I launched my um, virtual support group. It's called No Longer Last. And it's a support group where I basically teach you how to make yourself a priority. And it's particularly for women because I think we've been conditioned as a society to be the constant caregivers, homemakers, and martyrs in our homes. And I want people to stop doing that by taking care of themselves every day. And there's all these tools to support you 
to in that program. I have a workshop and I have um, some other resources like a guided journal and like some uh, journaling prompts to help you work through just a whole lot of issues and baggage as to why it's so hard for you to take care of yourself. So um, you can go to miahemstad.com to check that out. It's something I'm really proud of. And we're actually doing our first uh, support group meeting of the quarter tomorrow. So yeah, it's uh, we have a monthly support group meeting as well. So if you don't have friends that understand what you're going through, there are spaces on the internet where there are people who share. And one of the things I love about my group is that several of the women in there are very open and honest about the mental illnesses they have. And so it's just very relieving, you know, because sometimes we have no energy to validate ourselves. Sometimes I don't have Mm -hmm. any energy and I can go in this group and be like, I've been having the hardest time. And then all these women are like, I'm right there with you. This has been a really hard week. Like you're, it's going to be okay. And I think that's just such a beautiful thing that we, forget that we need as humans, you know, I think we don't really put as much value on it. But I think seeking out community, especially during this pandemic is just so vital to our mental health. Anyway, but yeah, that's thanks for asking. Those are all the ways you can connect with me and stay in touch. Okay, great. Um, Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. You were so easy to talk to. Like, I think, yeah, really, I think this is like, my most relaxed interview. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of Students of Mind. To follow the work of Christina and Mia, be sure to check the description of the episode. You can also find links to resources and more information about PTSD, trauma, and some of the other specific things that were mentioned in the episode. If you want to see more of Students of Mind, you can follow us on Instagram at Students of Mind, and you can follow me on Instagram at Jade M. Barber for a more personal look into my mental health journey. I hope you learned something new today, and I look forward to sharing more with you next episode. Do you want to deepen your connection to the divine, speed up your progress on the spiritual path, then tune in to the Spirit Matters podcast. I'm the host, Philip Goldberg, and I interview experts with wisdom, insight, and practical guidance for every seeker of truth. Spirit Matters on the mindbodyspirit.fm network. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.